Would you stand with me as we read? From Acts chapter 5 this morning. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all gathered together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And now more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go, stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officials came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look! The men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. And God exalted him at his, at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thudius rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And after Judas, after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For in this, if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God... You will not be able to overthrow it. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. 
Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. The word of the Lord. In our confession this morning, perhaps the words of the psalmist resonated with you. In fact, if you flip back, you can look at those words. After asking for the Lord to be gracious, the psalmist describes his place in a struggle with sin in this way, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow, my tears with sighing, my strength fails because of my iniquity. And my bones waste away. Have you been in that place where your strength fails because of your iniquity? It's actually a very stunning, stark description of what it means, the physical implications or the overall ramifications of what it means to be affected by sin. It might raise the question of why do we continue to return to sin? It's really the primary notion on the table today is why would we go back to something that hurts us? As Jesus will phrase it, why would we be a dog that returns to its vomit? It doesn't make sense. It isn't a lovely picture, and yet still we find ourselves doing it over and over and over again. It's not only our problem. Lily Danziger is a, a secular bartender, but she she found herself experiencing a funny phenomenon, and she wrote an article about it. She was dating a bad boy and was head over heels for the bad boy. He was mysterious and dark and handsome and seemed to do whatever he wanted to do whenever he wanted to do it, and she was taken with him. But over time, the bad boy would lose interest in her, would tell her that he had been talking to his ex again and was going back to his ex, and she was heartbroken. She felt like her world had fallen apart. She entered a, a several-month-long depression and didn't know in what direction to turn. But she started to think, you know, there's a boy who works here, and he's, he's from the Midwest. He's charming. He's obviously expressed interest in me. I'm going to go out on a date with him. And so she begins to date him, but she says, from the beginning, I'm not taking this seriously. This is uh, a rehabilitation for me. My confidence is low. It can be raised back up, and it will be interesting to date a nice gentleman. And so she dates him, and she becomes surprised. So this is what it's like to be in a relationship in which I'm treated like a person, respected, uh, perhaps loved in an appropriate way, and it doesn't do anything for her. At least it doesn't do for her what the bad boy had done. And so when the bad boy broke up with his girlfriend, and said, I'd really like to get back together. I'm so sorry, I made a mistake. Lily jumped at the chance. But taking a step back from the situation, she asked herself, why? Why do I run back to something that I know isn't going to end well? And why do I abandon something that I know was good for me or better for me than the alternative? It's a question that we've all struggled with from time to time. Why do we return to that which doesn't work? Why do we return to that which doesn't satisfy? And how 
do we break ourselves free from that ongoing cycle? Our passage is going to help to answer that question. We realize at the get-go there's a lot going on in our passage today. We've got signs and wonders and miracles of healing and miracles of casting out demons and a miraculous release of the apostles from prison by an angel of the Lord. There is no shortage of impressive things going on in this passage, but I would argue to you this morning that by far the most impressive thing, the most shocking thing in this passage is verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They were released rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer. Rejoicing that they were suffering. Now you may not understand the full implication of verse 41 yet. We will once we get a little bit further into the sermon. But that is an incredibly shocking verse. To understand why it's shocking, we need to consider, at least to start, Luke's uniqueness in his appropriation of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now Luke, more than any other gospel writer, is very intent to show Theophilus, his primary audience, and us, his readers, that the New Testament, or particularly Jesus, fulfills everything that is foretold in the Old Testament. Even more so than Matthew, who's the most Jewish of the gospel writers, Luke goes out of his way to quote massive amounts of Old Testament scriptures over time and then to articulate his gospel in a way that shows the reader how God is fulfilling all of his promises, that the prophecies of the Old Testament are coming true in Jesus Christ. And we actually see this as he's, uh, as he's writing. In verse 12, you see that there are signs and wonders regularly being done by the people. In verse 13... Uh, The new community of faith is held in high esteem. In verse 14, they're growing in numbers. In verse 16, both the sick and the demon-possessed are being healed. Now, if you you knew really well the, the scriptures at large, and knew the narrative or the story of the Old Testament, and you came upon a passage, and you said, hmm, signs and wonders, and all of a sudden, uh, the community of faith is being held on high esteem, and it's actually growing. People from different neighborhoods or the surrounding area are coming into this community, and the sick are healed, and demons are cast out, all following the outpouring of the Spirit. You would say, oh, this is the day of the Lord. It's almost like a checklist from the Old Testament prophets. You know, healing, outpouring of the Spirit, so on and so forth. Check, 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 check. Oh, Luke is telling us that the day of the Lord has been fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. Now, uh, the day of the Lord is an Old Testament notion that God is one day going to show up, and when he does show up, he's going to kind of put everything right. He'll fix what's wrong, he'll promote Israel, and he'll... um, But part of it is, well, is this creation of what we might call a spirit-induced obedience, In Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel will talk about it this way, that in that that day when the Lord comes, he's looking down the corridor of time, the hearts of stone that are the main problem for Israel will be replaced with hearts of flesh. In other words, the Spirit will make God's people particularly obedient and responsive to his leading, so much so that they won't necessarily need the law, the whole Mosaic law as the Old Testament people of God did, because the Spirit will in effect be a law written on their hearts. Okay, 
So Luke is telling us that the day of the Lord has come about. And with the day of the Lord, we would expect to see a renewed kind of heart of flesh obedience. And that's exactly what we do see. We see kind of a radical obedience and that the apostles are willing to continue to be faithful to God even when they're persecuted. Peter and John were just arrested. All the apostles continue to preach and to do what they perceive to be obedient unto God. They're arrested, and when they're threatened and even beaten, their response is still, you know what? At the end of the day, we have to obey God rather than men. There's a pretty radical obedience going on here. Now, here's the rub. When we understand what Luke is doing and articulating that the day of the Lord has been fulfilled in this passage and at this time in redemptive history, we would also expect that with renewed or radical obedience would come radical blessing. Right? That's how the Old Testament worked. That's how God's covenant with Israel worked. Right? We could look at a place like Deuteronomy 28, which outlined the boundaries of the covenant with God's people, and which essentially said, listen, Israel, if you're going to be obedient, you'll be blessed. You're going to make out really well materially. Right? You're going to have fat bank accounts and very profitable vineyards and animals. But if you're disobedient, you're going to get all the curses I'm going to put on the other countries for their sin. And the list of curses is pretty bad. Right? Deuteronomy 28.11 says, And the Lord will make you, and this is for obedience, will make you abound in prosperity in the fruit of your womb and in the fruit of your livestock and in the fruit of your ground. But later on, by verse 15, God's warning them, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Okay. So the Old Testament economy, so to speak, in other words, the way the people related to God and received his favor or disfavor was blessing for obedience and cursing for disobedience. Now we all of a sudden find ourselves at a place in the story in which we're seeing unparalleled spirit-inspired obedience on the people of God. And so at least according to an Old Testament narrative, we would expect that suddenly there would also be unparalleled material blessing from God. Right? That all of a sudden, everything that the, the apostles would put their hand to would flourish. Just like when King David was obedient, the kingdom flourished. And when King David was disobedient, the kingdom came under judgment. Is that what we see here? Absolutely not. And this is why this passage and what Luke is doing and what's happening in redemptive history is so shocking. Because with unparalleled obedience comes suffering. The rules have changed. In fact, they've changed quite dramatically. In terms of the apostles' suffering, we've seen Peter and John imprisoned already. We have seen them go forth and be threatened, saying to the religious leaders that they will obey God rather than man. In verse 40, it says that they were beaten. Now this language, or the verb, the word used for beaten there in verse 40 is the old Roman imperial term for 40 lashes minus one, which means you would receive 39 lashes. It's the same number of lashes that Jesus received. And the notion behind it in the ancient world was you can endure about 39 lashes before you died. It was, it was the way to push the envelope of physical punishment without actually compromising the life of the individual. And this is what the apostles have suffered for being completely obedient and faithful to God's leading 
in the midst of telling the story of Jesus and standing strong before the religious leaders. They are suffering for excellent obedience. Now you would think, at least I would think, the apostles would take this up with God. But we're still talking about a group of 12 Jews. Would they not go to God and say, you know, God, uh, for the last 1,500 years, for obedience, we've gotten blessing. We're really trying to be obedient here. Uh, the lashes don't really fall into our category of blessing. Why are we suffering as the result of obedience? But that's not what they say. And it, I mean, just I think to drive this home a little bit, would you imagine yourself being one of the apostles or disciples at this time? Imagine. You have either just suffered 40 lashes or 39 lashes or you're good friends and look to the apostles for leadership and are trying to figure out why they have suffered 39 lashes. How would you pray? I can tell you how we'd pray. Lord, please make this persecution stop. Please convert the religious leaders. Please let all of our suffering come to an end. Please convert the Roman Empire so that we can live life comfortably and unaffected. It's not how the apostles pray or confess or speak to the situation, no. In verse 41, they say we simply count it a privilege to be counted worthy to suffer for the name. Now, when's the last time you or I, in the midst of our suffering, simply said, you know, God, thank you. I counted a privilege to suffer for the name, for identifying with the name of Jesus and receiving something that I don't think I deserve. In fact, I think it's contrary to my obedience. I still count it a privilege to suffer. You see, the story has changed dramatically from the Old Testament uh, course, and of course it's been interrupted by the arrival of God himself, which has demonstrated that victory will be had in weakness. You know, he hangs on a cross and says, sin and death, I've got you. And that transforms the notion, the very idea of how we, can, we are invited to think about suffering. And so the apostles, and think, you know, they have to be processing this on the way, say, oh, maybe we need to think more deeply about what Jesus meant when he told us to pick up our cross and follow after him. Jesus has bid us not simply to come, but to come and die. And suffering now may be not a terrible thing. Suffering may be a very holy thing. Suffering may be something that actually transforms us. And indeed, as Peter is actually experiencing this, eventually he will come to theologize it, to say it emphatically in his letters as he encourages the churches. In 1 Peter 1, Peter writes, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, you may be suffering significantly. You may be suffering a little bit. We probably all would acknowledge we're suffering in some way. Now, our default as good Western American Christians is to do everything possible in our power to alleviate our suffering. Right? 
to put it to bed. We'll take control. We'll fix this situation. We'll redeem it. Now, and I'm not saying you shouldn't do anything in the face of suffering. But what if we're being called to think about our suffering in a different way, that our suffering is not simply a problem that has to be solved as quickly as possible and we must exert all of our control to bend it to our will, but maybe suffering is actually a condition in which God says, I am testing you and the result of this test will be more valuable than gold. Not only that, but as Peter writes, it will result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Because you have demonstrated a faith that continues to praise and acknowledge the lordship of an individual who has simply bid you to come and to suffer. And you live in that paradox. I've, I've been called to suffer by a God who loves me enough to die for me. How do I live in this paradox? How do I understand it and make sense of it? Well, it is this point at which, as followers of Jesus, you have to ask, Russell, did I really sign up for this? Because many of us, whether we'd acknowledge it or not, subconsciously at some level, we tend to think of salvation as something like, well, when I get Jesus, I get a lot of blessing. And I like to think of that blessing materially. Jesus is kind of like my pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And ultimately, he's going to fix whatever's wrong with my marriage and my kids and my job. And he's going to chase away all diseases. And that's the way I expect the blessings to roll out as a result of his atonement on the cross. And that's not what Jesus does. And it's not what he calls you to. It's not what he promises. It's something that we have kind of made up. And so when we realize that the call is actually to embrace suffering, that we might be transformed, that that suffering might put our old selves ultimately to death, then the call, we realize, is actually to embrace suffering. To say, can I move forward? You know, maybe I'm nowhere near the apostles and be willing to say, you know, I count it a privilege to endure this suffering for having been identified with the name of Jesus. Maybe... Maybe I can take a step toward in that direction. I'm not trying to wrestle my suffering to the ground, but instead to live in the midst of it and seek God's hand in it. As Peter says, suffering will only always embrace where our faith exists, where our faith lies. If you, I mean, what a gift. You would never know the nature of your faith if it was not for suffering. This notion is certainly demonstrated to us in the story of Jackie Wallace. Uh, Ted Jackson was a photojournalist. Uh, he has been a photojournalist for his entire life. And in 1990, he had been assigned to cover uh, a homeless community under I-10 in New Orleans. And there he was taking pictures of some of the men who had gathered in this community living under the bridge. And... He met a man, uh, he was taking his picture and began to, to talk with him. Of course, he'd asked permission to take the picture. And the man was reading the local newspaper uh, for which Ted Jackson was working. And he said, you know, he showed him a story. He said, you're doing this story on how hard it is to come out of the NFL and survive. It was on players who make a, you know, a ton of money in the NFL, and then they leave the NFL, and they don't have good financial discipline and often their families come and ask to, them to share it, and it evaporates very quickly. And so a lot of, a significant number of NFL players end up penniless, if not homeless. And, and Jackie Wallace said, you should do the story, I fit the story, you should do a story on me. 
Well, Ted Jackson didn't want to insult the man, had no idea who Jackie Wallace was, so he ran back to the paper and into the sports department and said, does anybody know who Jackie Wallace is? At which point, every pencil went down and every head went up, and the editor spoke up for the department. He said, yeah, he's one of the most famous football players to come out of New Orleans. He grew up here. He's played for three NFL teams. He's been in two Super Bowls. has posted all kinds of stats, and no one's seen him in 10 years. When he left the NFL, he disappeared. Ted Jackson said, well, I think I know where, where Jackie Wallace is. And Jackie Wallace was just that. He came out of the NFL. His money evaporated. His cousin introduced him to crack cocaine. And he went down a road of drug abuse and was living under, uh, under the bridge. Well, they published a story on Jackie Wallace soon thereafter. And out of that came an enormous outflow of community support. Uh, his old coach went and picked him up uh, as soon as he read the article got him into a rehab program, money was raised, jobs, a job was found, he was thriving, he met a woman, got uh, married, came back to Ted Jackson and said, thank you so much, you've turned my life around. You're, the photo, which became very famous, of Jackie Wallace, who was sleeping um, in a fetal position under the bridge, had gone viral and had changed his life. And for 10 years, it was happily ever after. Jackie Wallace was living uh, really an outstanding um, and respectable life. But in 2002, Ted Jackson worried because for every year on Thanksgiving, Jackie Wallace had called Ted Jackson to say thank you. Thanks for taking the picture. Thanks for publishing the story. But on the 11th year, the call didn't come. And so he started to get worried and he started to investigate and realized that Jackie uh, Wallace had gotten into a fight with his wife and the police had been called and he had been removed from the house and he said, fine, I'm done. And he went back to drugs and homelessness and re-entered that cycle. And you think, my goodness, what? How could you go back to that? Right, to know the heights of an NFL career and the, the depths of living under a bridge and to come back and then only to return to those depths again, right? Suffering always reveals where faith lies. And for Jackie Wallace, at the moment when his things were coming apart with his wife, the suffering that was occurring, right? He says, okay, at the end of the day, my faith is in these drugs. And so I'm returning them to them for salvation. And so Jackie, Jackie Wallace's story will go up and down, in and out of rehab, years sober and years back on the street. And he said the most interesting thing to Ted Jackson, uh, the journalist. One, uh, Jackie Wallace says this, one thing about drug abuse, it will wait on you. It will make you do things and say things that you wouldn't normally do. It knows you will ultimately get back to them. Our tendency is to return to what comforts and heals, or to what comforts rather than to what actually heals. And Jackie Wallace's story is our story. Right? We could all say, one thing about sin, it will wait on you. It will make you do things and say things that you wouldn't normally do. It knows you will ultimately get back to it. Now, the point of what we're talking about this morning, though, is not simply to say we're going to return to sin, right? but we want to return to, our temptation is to return to an Old Testament economy. Right? The 1,500 years of blessing for obedience and cursing for disobedience. We like to be on that playing field because when we start to think deeply, oh, Jesus has called me to be saved, yay. Oh, Jesus has called me to suffer, not so much. Where'd that come from? I'm not sure I want to go down that road. 
And when the suffering gets turned up, we say, you know, God, the old, the old standard wasn't so bad. And of course, we make two ridiculous presumptions when we want to move back into that standard. The first is that we're much better than, we, we think we're much better than we actually are. Right? The only reason that you want to live in an economy where you get blessed for obedience is you think you're quite obedient. And so you look around at other people and you say, I'm not doing so bad because I know some people who are pretty disobedient. I think I'm going to fare well here. Which is death, right? So, you know, in some ways, I think the story of the Bible goes like this. God says, uh, you know, I really, I want to come and I want to redeem you through my own death. But we can't rush to that. We can't simply do that. Before we get there, you have to learn that we can't have a relationship through economy. You see, it's your human heart that is going to want to be blessed for obedience and cursed for disobedience. You like that standard, and you're going to think that you can operate in a relationship with me based on that standard. You have to learn that you can't before you'll actually accept the grace of the cross. And so we're going to have to endure a long period of you trying to live by law and failing over and over and over again before the message sinks in. But we, the message hasn't sunk in when we want to go back to live under that economy, to say, yeah, I'd like to be blessed for obedience. Uh, it didn't work before, and it's not going to work now. The other temptation in terms of, of thinking through returning to that old system is that we just don't want to suffer. We are people addicted, and we've got two lines running into both arms, and both bags are labeled pleasure. And the notion that we would be called to suffer is, in our day and age, is something that, that pains us all and we don't want any part of. We simply want to be on a constant drug trip. But that, you know, rationally, you know that doesn't bring life. You know that doesn't deliver anything. Not only that, but it allows you to pretend to love Jesus and to grow in him without actually moving any closer to him. To move closer to Jesus means that more and more of your old nature must die. And the only way your old nature dies is through suffering. But as it dies, your new self emerges, becomes stronger, grows, consumes your old self, and you are truly made new. You know, I don't, I get, frankly, I just get annoyed sometimes with the illusions between Christianity and Star Wars. That being said, as I thought about this passage this week, I could not help but think about this image in terms of understanding what we're talking about. Right? It's the image that comes from the first Star Wars chronologically. I can't remember what actual Roman numeral it is, but it's the first one that I tried to show my kids a year or two ago, and they said it was the most boring film they had ever seen in their life. At which point they were all sent to the yard for a week to sleep. But uh, it's the notion where, um, you know, they're in the Death Star, I think. Luke's on the, Luke and Leia are on the run. And uh, anyway, it's where Obi-Wan is facing off against Darth Vader, right? Lightsabers are flashing. Obi-Wan is buying them time to get out of the, uh, the danger zone to get on the Falcon and out of the ship or out of the Death Star. And so they're fighting and you think you, it's kind of a moment you're, you're, as a viewer you're thinking this is great. right? Obi-Wan, lifetime of Jedi experience, takes on the student and Vader is about to just get floored. 
And then all of a sudden, I mean, it would be neat to really remember what it was like to watch this for the first time. Obi-Wan puts up his lightsaber and says, essentially, if you strike me down now, I will become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. Right? But notice, notice that tension. Right? Our desire to see Obi-Wan beat up on Vader using all of his strength and the resources that he has. But instead, he asserts, I will become more powerful by being struck down. Right? That is very much the notion or the nature of the two selves that wage war in our life. Right? When we face suffering, we think, oh, I'm going to rally all of my resources, my intelligence and my money and my power, my lightsaber, and I will strike down that which afflicts me. And perhaps, just perhaps, by not taking that course and saying instead, you know, maybe, I'm, maybe the suffering is intended to strike me down, or at least my old self down, and as a result of that, my new self becomes more powerful than I even dare imagine. As long as we live in this fear of suffering and this desire to return to the old economy, we live in bondage. It's the slavery of sin. We need to be reminded this morning of John's words, or Jesus' words, captured in John's gospel. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, I think, just scratched the surface of understanding what it means for you to be victorious through a cross and what it means for us to be, to be summoned to follow you as disciples, not that we should embrace uh, this long list of blessings that we think we will receive, but instead to realize that we're, we're bid to come and die. And so help us to understand, not just understand, but to value and to believe that when, our, uh, when we are struck down, and particularly the we that lives in the old self and in the old economy, beautiful things can occur. And we can actually know freedom and not be terribly afraid of suffering, but to know that in the midst of suffering there is life. Would you forgive us for the ways in which uh, we, we try to control everything around us? And instead, would you help us, even in the midst of our suffering, uh, to move toward the example that you've given to us in Acts 5? Uh, from the perspective of the Old Testament, the, the lashes are the last thing the apostles should have suffered. But from the perspective of the cross... The lashes give life to them and life to the world. Help us to receive that life this morning at your table. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.